Deuteronomy 5. Deuteronomy 5. Now, we close Wednesday night by talking about verses 1 through 5. Verses 1 through 5, God says, I'm not making this covenant with your fathers, I'm making this covenant with you. That's not a way to deny that He made the covenant with their fathers. It's a way to emphasize the reality of a covenant with them. I'm making this covenant with you. Now, then stated are the ten words or the ten commandments from Exodus. Uh, they're also in Exodus 21 through 17 as they are here in Deuteronomy 5, verses 6 to 21. I asked Wednesday if you would read these, compare these to Exodus, and let's see the point at which they differ, okay? See where they differ. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 6. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any cattle or any sojourner who stays with you. So that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you To observe the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you. That your days may be prolonged and that it may go well with you on the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant, his female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, God reveals himself first and foremost as the God who brought the people out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God introduces himself and then gives these ten words or ten commandments, ten requirements of his people. Most of them we're going to go over very quickly today. The reason is because uh, we preached on these extensively about this time last year. 
Uh, some of these requirements, beginning with you shall not murder in verse 17, were fundamental requirements of other ancient Near Eastern societies. And if a society is going to work together in peace and harmony, you've got to have commandments against murder and stealing. And things of this nature. If a court system is going to be based on any kind of justice, or have any kind of justice going to be based on truth. And even in Egypt, adultery was called the great sin. And so, other societies knew about these commandments. But God said, you shall not make an idol. One of the things, or first of all, he says, you shall have no other gods before me. God's claim to be Israel's God was an exclusive claim. And he was not going to share their loyalty with anyone else. Other nations of the ancient Near East had many gods, though one chief God. But in Israel, you shall have no other gods before me. Uh, the second commandment, you shall not make a graven image in verses 8 through 10. You remember last week when God said in Deuteronomy 4, verses 9 through 24, remember what you saw at Mount Sinai and remember what you didn't see. You didn't see a form, you didn't see an image, and the reason you didn't see a form or image is because you're not to make those to represent God. But I wanted to get back to the question that I asked you to look at. These commandments are basically identical to Exodus 20, verses 1 through 7. You can see some small differences. But what is the major point of difference, Bob? Well, uh, the difference is Yes. Yes. Okay, exactly. Exodus 20, verses 8 to 11, as it gave a reason to remember the Sabbath and to keep it holy, it was in verse 11, Exodus 20, verse 11, in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So there in Exodus 20, verse 11, the keeping of the Sabbath day is based on creation. In Deuteronomy 5, verse 15, it's based on the fact that you shall remember you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought you out of there by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. In Deuteronomy, it is connected with deliverance from Egyptian bondage. I want you to notice how frequently in Deuteronomy, deliverance from Egyptian bondage is given as motivation for a particular action. Look in Deuteronomy 15. Deuteronomy 15. In Deuteronomy 15... The law is stating that for six years you could keep a Hebrew slave, but on the seventh year, he was to go free. 
to go free on the seventh year. And when you send him out free, you furnish him liberally with the fruit of the ground. He did not leave empty-handed. Look at verse 14. You shall furnish him liberally from your flock, from your threshing floor, from your wine vat. You shall give him as the Lord your God has blessed you. Verse 15, you shall remember you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord Lord, your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. You were slaves in Egypt. And the Lord set you free. And when the Lord set them free, you may remember that the Egyptians gave them all kinds of wealth. Exodus 12, verses 35 and 36. And he states here, when you let your Hebrew slaves go free, you are to furnish them liberally with the things that God has provided for you. Look at Deuteronomy 16 and verse 12. Deuteronomy 16, verse 12. Deuteronomy 16 is talking about the observance of the Jewish feast days. And uh, verses 9 through 12 is talking about the feast of weeks. What in the New Testament is called Pentecost. But verse 12 says, you shall remember you were a slave in Egypt. And you shall be careful to observe all these statutes. The fact they were slaves in Egypt and God had delivered them was a reminder to them that they need to worship and they need to observe these feasts. Of course, Passover itself remembered deliverance from Egyptian bondage. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy 24 in verse 18. The Bible says, you shall remember... Let's start with verse 17. You shall not pervert the justice due to an alien, to an orphan, or take a widow's garment in pledge. But you shall remember you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I am commanding you to do this thing. In verses, so they are to not pervert justice due to alien, orphan, widow. They're to remember how God delivered them, and therefore they are to show mercy to the weak, to the broken, etc. In verses 19 through 22, the text emphasizes that they are not to go back over their vineyards for a second time and to take all of the olives or all of the fruit of the trees. They are to leave them for the orphan, the alien, the widow. Verse 22, you shall remember you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I'm commanding you to do the same. My point, I'm sure there are a lot of other examples. But these examples illustrate that God's deliverance of the people from Egyptian bondage was a motivation that affected their behavior in every area of life. There was not an area of life that was untouched by the memory of what God had done for them in deliverance from Egyptian bondage. But I also want us to think in these terms, I want us to think in these terms of seeing the Sabbath in all of Scripture. For example, it is striking 
How many miracles of Jesus take place on the Sabbath? And that was constantly a source of controversy, wasn't it? It's interesting to me that they may put a man with a withered hand in front of Jesus on the Sabbath, wondering if he would heal, and if he was healed, they would accuse him. They would do that, but they seem to take it for granted that Jesus could heal and do well, but they want to accuse him because he does it on the Sabbath. But was Jesus doing those things on the Sabbath just to irritate people? Was he doing that just to disturb people? Or was he doing that for a purpose? In Luke 13, verses 10 through 17, Luke 13, 10 through 17, there is the account of a woman who for 18 years was bent double and could not stand up straight. When I read that, that sounds painful to me. I, I, I cannot imagine someone who lived in that kind of circumstance. And deliverance right away would be such an awesome thing. And when she comes to the synagogue on the Sabbath, Jesus says in verse 12, You're free from your sickness. He lays hands on her immediately. She stands erect and she is glorifying God. Now, the synagogue official says there are six days in which you need to come and be healed. Come in those days and be healed, not during the Sabbath. I guess that's easy to say for a person that's well. But Jesus says in verse 16, And this woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not be released from this bond on the Sabbath day? The Sabbath was about delivering people from bondage in Deuteronomy 5, verses 12 through 15. Jesus wasn't healing on the Sabbath simply to irritate his foes or simply to show he could do it. Jesus was doing this in an effort to teach them what the Sabbath was all about. The Sabbath was about release. The Sabbath was about deliverance. Why would Hebrews 4 not tell us there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God? Why why say it that way? We're going to keep the Sabbath again? The Sabbath was about a release and deliverance which we still long for in eternity. And so that is one of the differences, as Bob points out, between Deuteronomy 5, 6-21, and uh, Exodus chapter 20. The main difference is the requirement about the Sabbath day. Now, before we go on to verses 22-33, do you have a question there? Because I know we gave that short statement. Uh, particularly for those who were not here for all that series on the Ten Commandments. Yes. It just struck me when you were saying that the Ten Commandments and they were in bondage in Wilbur. It was to get them out of bondage into every aspect of their life and how that we are in our spiritual wilderness right now and every aspect of our life has to be dedicated to God. It can't just be a pie, your work life, your go to church life, your home yeah. life. It's your entire being 
in order for him to lead us out of our bondage, yes. out of our wilderness. You know, in a certain way, too, the Sabbath touched upon all of that. Because in the Sabbath day, they were keeping it holy. They were remembering God the Creator and God the Deliverer. And they were also showing kindness to their son and their daughter and their male and their female servant. In a way, this incorporates most all of life. And it is interesting, as we point out, you may remember this from our study of Leviticus 25 and Leviticus 26, when we were going through that, there is kind of the assumption that if Israel is unfaithful to God, one of the first things that's going to go out the window is their observance particularly of the Sabbath year. It's just assumed in Leviticus 26, uh, verses 34 and 35, and I believe verse 43, that you would not keep those Sabbath years. And was Israel's history, let me ask you this question. In the Old Testament, was Israel's history a history of obedience or disobedience to the Sabbath commandment? Disobedience, okay. And I have several that have disagreed with that over the years because they say, look at the New Testament. The reason they did that in the New Testament, the reason they became so concerned with that in the New Testament is they knew they had fallen short in the Old Testament. And Jeremiah 17 verses 19 through 27 says, if you keep the Sabbath, you won't go into Babylonian captivity. If you don't keep it, you will. They went to Babylonian captivity. What does it tell you? They didn't keep it, you know. Nehemiah 13 verses 12 through, uh, Nehemiah 13 verses 15 through 22 shows us Nehemiah saying, listen, this is why you need the activity again. Don't bring these problems upon yourself. Now, let's go to the next section though. And let's talk about verses, uh, 22 through 33. One of the key words here uh, is the word here. Listen, obey, Shema. Also a key idea is God speaking from the midst of the fire. Now, I, I, I don't know exactly why I went to the uh, slide at this moment in time. Uh, I guess it's just to indicate to you, you might need to write that down. That we may need to remove it in a second. Let's read verses 22 through 27. What idea uh, do the people, how does it show us the awesomeness of God? That's the thing I want you to focus on. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain from the midst of the fire, of the cloud, of the thick gloom, and with a great voice. And he added no more. He wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And it came about when you heard the voice from the midst of the fire, while the mountain was burning with fire, that you came near to me and all the heads of your tribes and your elders. And you said, Behold, our God has shown us his glory and his greatness. And we have heard his voice from the midst of the fire. And we have seen today that God speaks with man, yet he lives. Now then, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer than we shall die. For who is there of all flesh 
who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire, as we have and live. Go therefore, go near and hear all the words the Lord our God says, then speak to us all the Lord our God will speak to you and we will hear and we will do it. Okay. Now, um, looking at these passages, one of the things that struck me, I already mentioned that in 5 verses 23 through 28, you find the Hebrew word for here used eight times. Eight times. That word can mean hear, it can mean listen, it can mean obey, it can carry all of that significance. But a phrase that really struck me to show us the awesomeness of God is the emphasis on God speaking from the midst, the midst of the fire. God speaking from the midst of the fire. That phrase was used in 5 verse 4, what we studied Wednesday night. The Lord spoke to you face to face at the mountain from the midst of of the fire. You see that in 5 verse 4. You see that in verse 22. It said, He spoke from the mountain, from the midst of the fire. Then you see in verse 24, it says, We have heard His voice from the midst of the fire. And in verse 26, you see the same thing. We heard the living God speaking from the midst of the fire and lived. And all of verses 24 through 26 are just stressing the marvel of the fact that God has spoken to them and they have not been consumed. Let me, let me just ask you, you help me here. Give me a few cases. Where are some cases in the Old Testament where you see, see God connected with death? See God connected with death. And by the way, to make it helpful on me, it would help if you start from the first one mentioned in the Bible to the, to the last. Go in the proper order, or I'll have to write, uh, I'll have to write it. All through the screen. But but what are some cases you see that? Where God said the people saw God and they were afraid of death. Okay. Cain? Cain is afraid of death. Yes. Uh, it may be whoever finds me will strike me. I don't. I, I'm looking too carried from a particular place. Seeing God. It's, it's not that it's not he doesn't fear death as a consequence of his sin. But I'm, but I'm seeing that particularly as of seeing God. Okay, Adam and Eve. Um, well, they hide themselves from God. So I guess, listen, uh, uh, yeah, you'll have to, you'll have to get. You're not going to be right unless you think of the ones I'm thinking about. Okay, so you're going to think of the ones I'm thinking. But, but you give the illustration, and all these show us the awesomeness of God, Mike. You think of Moses and the burning bush. 
Okay, Moses in the burning bush says he was afraid to look at God. Yes. But let's, let's start with the first one I remember was Genesis 16, 13. That's not right. Yeah. <laughs> Genesis 16, 13. As Hagar is amazed that she stays alive after seeing God. Remember that. Then you have, that's Hagar. Then you have in Genesis 32 and verse 30, Jacob wrestling with the angel. And he is amazed that after seeing God, that he is still alive. Then we come to Mike, who gave a good answer, but out of order, when he talks about Moses and the burning bush, he was afraid to look at God. Then you remember in Exodus 24, when the people, the 70 elders of Israel with Moses and Aaron, they eat with the Lord, but he does not stretch out his hand against them. It says they saw God, but he doesn't stretch out his hand against them. In Exodus 33, verse 20, God told Moses, no man can see my face and live. In Judges chapter 6, you remember Gideon was afraid. He talked about how he remained alive after seeing the face of God. And Manoah was afraid after he had seen the angel of God, Samson's father, that the Lord would take his life. Now, I encourage you to, to write down those. It's going to mean more if you look those up than I simply call them out. When people today act like they've seen God or seen an angel, it's a beautiful experience usually. In the Bible, they fear death. And what I'm building on is to say these people fear death for seeing God. Here in Deuteronomy 5, we find not only seeing God, but hearing His voice. Is a life-threatening situation. And the nation marvels that God has spoke to us from the midst of the fire. And yet, we remain alive. Friend, there's a balance that we need to keep. I don't want people viewing worship. As a drudgery. It is a joy. It is a celebration. That God has delivered us from sin. And brought us into a right relationship with Him. At great cost to Himself. It is a joy. It is a celebration. But we dare not approach Him irreverently. Flippantly. We must see God in all His glory. And stand in awe of Him. And there is that balance to keep. I think a whole lesson could be preached on this one verse. Psalm 2, verse 11. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. It's a cause of joy. We're rejoicing. 
We're rejoicing, but we're rejoicing. We're trembling. We're worshiping with reverence. And I don't want us to lose either side of that. It's not an either or. It's a both hand. In connection with the voice coming If you're asking for a number, I don't. But fire is used. Is fire is used constantly as a picture of judgment. You're right. And, and so I think that would also yeah. impress upon them. We live. He's in the midst of fire. Fire is not a good thing to have near. <laughs> fire is a picture of of. God's judgment at the same time in Daniel 7, you know, those rivers of fire. And it's a picture of his holiness too. So, so again, it can, a lot of these images can be used different ways. Did you have a thought here? Yeah, just um, hearing the voice of God today and listening to the word of God is still a life-threatening experience because it threatens everything you were up until that point. You may have to give up everything chances are you will. So it's not surprising that they were afraid of that in the Old Testament and that some of us are still afraid of hearing, listening, doing God's Word today. Because it can... It can require you to give up everything. It, it, it asks really you to die yeah. um, to yeah. everything that you were. And God help us with that. You know, because um, you're exactly right. I, I love the description that's given in Isaiah 66. And it's in Ezra, I believe Ezra 9 and 10. But it says, they gathered around Ezra. The people had sinned by intermarrying with foreigners. And it says, they're gathered around Ezra, those who trembled at the word of the Lord. And Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2, uses that same expression. Heaven's my throne, earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Uh, And God talks about coming to the humble and contrite of heart to those who tremble at his word. And let us not lose that. Not only when God speaks directly to Israel, but when we open up His Word, may it be treated with reverence. Let me just make a brief comment. I don't mean, I don't mean to say this to encourage, to discourage reverence in prayer. But I, I, I ran across this statement once and I thought, this makes sense. See, a lot of times in a prayer, everything's quiet. Nobody's moving. In Scripture reading, sometimes people feel free to, to walk, come and go. We don't approach it with the same situation. And he says, I'm not discouraging us not taking prayer seriously. So I'm not discouraging us taking I'm not discouraging us taking prayer seriously, but listen, in one case we're speaking to God, which is very serious. But isn't it just at least as serious when God is speaking to us? And and just think about it. Think about it. Now, 
So the people are saying to Moses, Moses, what we want you to do in verse 27, because of the fact, the fact that we've even remained alive after seeing God is just amazing, awesome. What we want you to do is we want you in verse 27 to go near and hear all the words the Lord says, then the Lord that then speak to us, all the Lord our God will speak to you, and we will hear, and we will do it. Now, I want you to notice this. In 528, the text says, the Lord heard the voice of the people's words. I talked about the word here used eight times from verses 23 to 28. It's always the people hearing the voice of God. Now in verse 28, it's God hearing their words. And God hears their words and God approves them. If you may remember back in chapter 1, verse 27, chapter 1, verses 34 and 35, that God heard the words of the people. And he disapproved of them. They said, the Lord hates us. That's why he's brought us out of the land of Egypt. To destroy us in the wilderness. But the Lord hears these words. And the Lord is pleased with these words. And the Lord says, I have heard the voice of the words of the people which they have spoken. They have done well in all they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart in them. That they would fear me and keep my commandments always and that it may be well with them and their sons forever. Now, this event is going to be revisited when we get to Deuteronomy 18 verses 16 and 17. In that context, the Bible is going to describe God raising up prophets to speak to the people. And God once again refers to this incident. Why did God not speak from heaven directly to the people? Why didn't he do that? Why doesn't God just speak everything out of the burning bush in the Old Testament? Because the people were overwhelmed with the greatness of God. And they thought if God speaks to us like this, we will die. And the very reason for prophets... In Deuteronomy 18, verses 16 through 17, the very reason for prophets is that God, uh, that God, the people requesting that God not speak directly like this. That they would be overwhelmed by the process. Now, I also want you to see something. I love the statement, and I apologize that I'm writing all over the place uh, here uh, I want you to know if I'm making a mess with this, I blame this. I blame this totally on Bob, who said he was going to have the board here by the day. But anyway, um, in 529, 529, God says, Oh, that such a heart was in them. God says, I wish this would always be true of the people. And that I could forever bless them like this. A couple of passages I would encourage you to write down with this. In Psalm 81 and verse 13. 81 verse 13. Oh that my people would listen to me. That Israel would walk in my ways. And I would quickly subdue their enemies. And turn my hand against their adversaries. 
And those who hate the Lord would pretend obedience to Him. Verse 16, I would feed them with the finest of wheat. The point is, God longs for His people to do right, that He might bless them. In Isaiah 48, Isaiah 48, in verse 18, If only you had paid attention to my commandments, then your well-being... Uh, to my commandments, then your well-being would have been like a river and your righteousness like waves of the sea. God longs for His people to do the right thing. God longs to bless His people. God is not terrifying Israel with a voice in the midst of the fire just because He, rezo- he rejoices in the people being afraid and trembling. He is doing this. That they might reverence Him. That He might bless them. And just, just as a parent is longing for their child to do the right thing. And longing to bless them and praise them. And you know about that. God, and that much more so, God is longing for that in us. God's love for the people comes through so clear. And strong. In verse 30. Go say to them return to your tents. But as for you. And that you is emphatic in that text. You stand here by me. They have asked that Moses speak with God. That Moses then relate that to the people. As for you, you stand here by me. That I may speak to you all by the commandments and the statutes and the judgment which you shall teach them, that they may observe them in the land which I give you, give them to possess, so that you may observe to do just as the Lord your God commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right or to the left. You shall walk in all the way which the Lord your God has commanded you that you may live. That it may go well with you and that you may prolong your days in the land which you shall possess. Now, I want us to look a second at that expression in verse, uh, in verse 32, 532, where the people are told not to turn aside to the right or left. Now, if you're giving somebody directions and you're telling them to stick to the path and they're afraid that they might get lost, you would tell them, don't turn aside from the path. Don't turn aside. Look in Deuteronomy 2, verse 27. Deuteronomy 2, verse 27. This is what they said to Sihon when they were passing through his territory. Deuteronomy 2.27 Let me pass through your land. I will travel only on the highway. I will not turn aside to the right or to the left. So, so in other words, we're just going to stick to the path. We're going to stick to the path. We're not going to turn to the right. We're not going to turn to the left. This awesome God is revealing himself to Israel. And Moses is going to listen to God and Moses is going to communicate the things that God said. Now understanding how awesome he is and what a powerful thing it is to hear his voice. We don't turn aside from the right 
we listed in what he said. Not turning aside to right or left, but doing what he says. This will be a common expression throughout the next few books, the, the next couple of chapters, look at Deuteronomy chapter 17, in verse 11, a priest would render judgments on decisions that were difficult. And the Bible says in Deuteronomy 17, verse 11, according to the terms of the law which they teach you, and according to the verdict which they tell you, you shall do, you shall not turn aside from the word which they declare to you to the right or to the left. In verse 20, Deuteronomy 17, verse 20, the king was told to write a copy of the law. And it says that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that they may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left. In order that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of, of Israel. And also, the idea appears in Joshua 1 and verse 7. I can give you other examples, but let's stop here. In Joshua 1 verse 7, only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn aside from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. Isn't it just a logical conclusion? If God is awesome and He speaks to us and He He is all wise and He knows what's right and He is gracious enough to communicate us and leave us alive after the experience, shouldn't we do what He said and listen to His voice? Isn't His way better than our way. And all of that is stress in that. Um, what questions did you all have that I didn't touch upon? Go ahead. Um, I, I noticed the repeated statement the commandments and the statutes and the judgments, and I didn't know if there was a differentiation between them or if they're just kind of together. I think they're basically used here parallelism. Um, you know, Psalm 119 will use all kinds of synonyms for the law of the Lord. And, and I think that it's based, but you do see it repeatedly. You do see, I haven't counted up all the numbers of every time that you see those phrases piled up, but, but you're right. You do see them. I do think they're meant pretty much to be synonymous. If you can point out some small distinctions, I don't think that changes the fact that they're used pretty synonymously in this context. Let's look at six, one through three. And you're going to see again, uh, what was just mentioned. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it. That you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep his statutes and his commandments which I command you. 
days of your life, that your days may be prolonged. Oh Israel, you should be you should listen and be careful to do that it, that it may be well with you, that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Listen to these commandments. Your sons and your grandsons will fear you. I want to tell you, there's something about just listening to God, doing what God said that instills in us a fear for God, an awesome reverence for Him. Listen to these and do them that your days may be prolonged. Listen that it might be well with you in verse 3. That you may multiply greatly. God promised Abraham he would multiply his descendants. How? Stars of heaven. Sand of the sea. And here God says that he may multiply greatly. Remember if the people were disobedient in chapter 4 verse 27. God will scatter you among the nations and you'll be left few. In number in 427, but if you're obedient here in 6-3, you'll multiply greatly. And then he says, Hear, O Israel, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Now that's powerful in itself, and we won't finish all of that tonight. But what's the first result of loving God in this text? In verse 6, these words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your sons. You shall talk of them when you sit in the house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as funnels on your forehead and you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and your gates. But let's go back to verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Now in uh, that statement, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. There's only four words uh, in the original language. Uh, and there's questions how best to... Um, translate that. But the main idea is God is your sole object of allegiance and affection. And you love Him with all your heart, with all your soul. Now usually that's how the Old Testament says something. With all your heart, all your soul. That shows full hearty commitment. Here it's all your heart, all your soul, and in the New American Standard, with all your mind. And that could be translated exceedingly verily. Or it could be translated um, in this verse 6-5 with all your very. And it, I think it's just a way to emphasize that. that if, if that if that doesn't mean anything to you, I think it's just a way to stress the first two parts. Heart, soul, mind, everything you've got. By the way, who is the only person in the Old Testament said to do that? Do you know? 
that, that uses those three phrases. It's, it's first, I remember there's only one. Okay, it's, it's Josiah, 2 Kings 23, verse 25. It compares him favorably to David right before that. But in ancient Near Eastern covenant, the partners in covenants were called to love one another. The Bible says in First Timothy, in First Kings chapter five, verse one, that Hiram, this is what it literally says. Hiram was a lover of David. New American Standard is Hiram is a friend of David. I think I know why they changed that translation. Lest it be misunderstood. But the word is actually love. Word is actually love. Partners in the covenants love one another. And God has done everything for Israel. And God has rescued Israel from the house of slavery. And from the land of bondage. And you love it. With all your heart. With all your soul. And with all your mind. When Jesus was asked, what's the first and great commandment? He points to this without hesitation. To love God with all we are and all we have. That He is everything to us. And these words will be in your heart and I command you. Is that that's our last bell? Okay. Sorry. It's good to uh it's good to have Brother John Weaver with us today as he uh walked in. Um after we'd started just a little bit, but it's good to see him, good to see all of you. Uh God bless you and uh let's worship our God in reverence.